Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending May 15th, 2020. This is now our 30th video cast and 20th podcast episode. So thanks for tuning in each week. We've got a lot to cover this week, so let's get started. Uh, we had a roller coaster of a week, pretty exciting. Um, we got into uh, early in the week and then we just rolled off a cliff. We uh, fell 6% on the S&P, peaked to trough, and we're going to talk about why that happened. But then we had a really aggressive rebound in the last two days, and we'll, we'll also talk a little bit about why that happened and what that, in fact, may portend. So effectively, 6% uh, intraweek drawdown, and we finished the week down, I think, about 2.5% on the S&P. I'd like to thank Yu Ji uh, at the Wall Street Journal, who included me in her uh, overnight update. I think it was in the Hong Kong edition, because when I pull it up on Wall Street Journal, when I click here, it clicks to a new updated version. But she was basically asking me yesterday what happened uh, for this steep recovery off the lows yesterday uh, late morning. And I was talking to her about the banks uh, really led the rally. You had uh, uh, Wells Fargo up almost 7% yesterday, U.S. Bank Corp up 5%. And a lot of that came actually um, simultaneously with a scoop from Charlie Gasparino over at Fox Business. And he said that Goldman Sachs was looking at U.S. Bank Corp and Wells Fargo and PNC Bank because they wanted the deposit base and to diversify their business. And the, the banks just really got bid strong off the lows yesterday. Uh, and the whole market recovered and, and followed through. The banks didn't show the uh, aggressive follow through today, but, uh, but the market did. So that was really a catalyst with the, with the change in sentiment on banks yesterday. And uh, so what we want to get down to this week is the core article, which was our Thomas Rhett beer can't fix stock market and sentiment results. And, uh, you know, basically what's what's happened here is we had a very sharp rally off of the March 23rd lows. Uh, so, uh, you know, we fell 35% peak to trough, and then we've rallied uh, now about 35% uh, off the spike lows. They don't show the spike lows here. It's not a candlestick chart. But it's basically for the Fibonacci traders, uh, it, was, it was basically an exact 61.8% retracement, which was kind of interesting. But that was almost a month ago. So we've been consolidating sideways to digest these gains uh, in this box here for uh, since about uh, you know mid-April through mid-May and midweek as I said we were down six percent we recovered a bunch of that so the market is really digesting those big gains and looking for direction and we got a lot of mixed signals this week but uh, this was written Wednesday night going into Thursday so we'd just been at the bottom of the six percent and uh, there was nothing like Thomas Rhett's song uh, lyrics to describe the sentiment of the market this week. Uh, it could be raining on your perfect vacation. You could be stressed out about your work situation. All I gotta 
uh, ain't got to listen to me, but all I'm saying ain't nothing that a beer can't fix. So uh, we'll just play a couple uh, couple tunes here to get us started. I'll tell you, you know, I I think that song is instant happiness, but uh, that's just me. So we've done all types of tunes in the last few weeks. We did hip hop last week with uh, Chainsmokers. Well, I guess that's not hip hop, that's pop. Uh, then before that, we did uh, Kanye West, so that was uh, more rap, and we're back to country this week, which was uh, which was very nice. Great song, by the way. So uh, you get some nice weather this weekend, maybe throw that on and, and enjoy. Um, okay, so why did we fall so aggressively? That mid percent, I mean, just out of nowhere, six percent drawdown, um, and basically a, a bunch of four major market moving figures came out with a generally pessimistic or cautious outlook all at once. It was just like four cannons in a row. And you know, you could ordinarily dismiss them as alarmist, but the, the heft and the credibility of the four people that were speaking can't be easily dismissed. So we're gonna uh, use some consideration in what they said, talk about it, and then um, uh, see what to do about it. So when I saw it was like four people in two days and the market just rolled over, what immediately came to mind was the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, calling for the end of times. That was basically what uh, these four folks uh, were doing. And I talk a little bit about the history of it from Wikipedia. You can read that at your leisure at the website. Just go to hedgefundtips.com under popular posts. It's the first one. This one was really a popular uh uh, post this week, and you can see the four horsemen, the the artwork from I think 1887. Uh, nonetheless, so the first horseman, and this one is we're going to spend a lot of time was Dr. Fauci, um, you know, who's been a steady hand throughout this whole thing, but he came on really heavily handed, um, warning senators on Tuesday. Don't open too quickly. We can face serious consequences. Schools may not reopen. Uh, we may not have a vaccine, um, and it was it was strange because as the whole country is slowly reopening and now more aggressively reopening in the last week, pretty much every state is now doing lifting some res restrictions. The laggards are like L.A. County, um, New York, kind of the epicenters, um, but by and large, everyone's on board now and. To see this was such a huge step back, and we're going to talk about the cost of caution in this podcast video cast because, you know, saying be cautious is not a free option, and it's it's actually it needs to be quantified because you, you we'll 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 drill down as to why, but it's 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 used with. Uh, great ease by many commentators and what is not accounted for often is the exact cost of caution um, and uh, and and there, that side of it is n is never quantified and we're going to go into that a little bit the second horseman predicting the end of times was Stan Druckenmiller who again is 
considerable. I mean, he had a run in his career uh, over a decade, maybe longer, of 30% gains on average. Now, often when you see those type of track records, um, they're skewed to, you know, one or two years where they just shot the lights out and had, you know, several hundred percent return or a thousand percent return. And that may be the case. But at the end of the day, very few people do it. He's done it. You got to take him seriously. And he said that um, the risk to reward calculation for equities is the worst he's seen in his career and that the government stimulus programs won't be enough to overcome real world economic problems. By the way, if you want to see the sources for all of these with uh, Dr. Fauci at CNN, uh, Druckenmiller at Bloomberg, you can just click on those hyperlinks in the article. And President Trump responded with the following tweet, when so-called rich guys speak negatively about the market, you must always remember that some are betting against it and make a lot of money if it goes down, then they go positive, get big publicity, and make it going up. You get it both ways, barely legal, question mark. Okay, I mean, look, people go on TV, they say what they're thinking at the moment. I would hope that they have positions consistent with what they're saying, because if they don't have their money with their mouth is, where their mouth is, um, then their opinion, in my view, is is not of much value. But if they have skin in the game and, and they believe that that view is true, then in some, yes, they, they're talking their book, but at the same time, that's where their analysis led them. So that's one guy's opinion, and he's a serious guy, so you have to take it in consideration. So that's Horseman 2. Horseman 3, uh, he was included in this. Basically, his presentation was that things are highly uncertainly, uh, uncertain, significant to downside risks. Um, again, you know, cautious and uh, um, putting that on the table. But what he's saying, he was making a strong pitch that the Fed is is doing everything under the sun within their power. uh, And they've really backstopped the market. And they've done a phenomenal job, by the way. So I'm I'm not putting him in as one of these horsemen to be critical. I'm not putting any of these horsemen to be critical. I'm saying that these four mouthpieces had a significant impact on the intra-week drawdown of 6% and why the market took it seriously. So that's basically what we're, we're trying to cover in this. Um, I think the most important thing that he said that spooked a lot of people was that nearly 40% of households earning less than $40,000 a year lost a job in March. Now, if you drill down into that data... Uh, Google Brian Chung Yahoo, he actually drilled down and there was such a high percentage of people who were included in that 40% that actually proactively took off. I think it was 18% took off because they had to teach their children school uh, and expected to go back to work. So 75% of these people were either furloughed or expected to go back to work. So while the numbers are scary, the estimates of recovery are are much more sanguine. So keep that in mind. And as we go through some of the economic numbers this week, like, um, you know, different production levels that were down at, at, you know, record low levels, it's like, oh, it was XYZ was only at 65%. Well, how come, how was it not at 0%? 
right? So like the whole country actually shut down. That's never happened in history. We proactively did that as a health choice. So the fact that some of these numbers are at 65% of X and we'll, we'll go through them specifically is actually pretty constructive when we um, unpeel what's there. Uh, Powell did end on a constructive note saying that the economy could eventually return to where it was before the pandemic with unemployment at a 50-year low of 3.5%. It'll take some time to get back to where we were. I have every reason to think that we should get back there. So he was balanced, but I think that was really a pitch to Congress like, hey, cough up a final trillion or $2 trillion, get another stimulus check out there, get some infrastructure going. I know the Democrats uh, want uh, aid to states, the Republicans want infrastructure and business and tax cuts and liability protection for businesses so they can open up more quickly. So, you know, the Democrats are not going to get three trillion. The Republicans are not going to get a trillion of infrastructure, but they'll probably get the business liability protection. Uh, the Dems will probably get, you know, a few hundred billion for the states and municipalities to cover the COVID costs, and they'll get something done in, in the next couple of weeks. The good news is that with the nine trillion plus that's already out there in stimulus aid and liquidity, two point three, two point eight from uh, a fiscal, another four trillion of the Fed and um, Treasury working together, expanding the lending facility of four trillion, and then balance sheet expansion of two point eight trillion in the last uh, two and a half months. The liquidity, and, you know, it, it's over nine trillion. So. And then finally, you had billionaire, uh, for also former hedge fund manager, David Tepper, who's probably someone that everyone listens to because his calls are have been historically accurate and his long-term track record is phenomenal. And I don't think it's lumpy. I think it's consistently solid uh, over time. And he said that... The stock market is one of the most overpriced he's ever seen, only behind 1999. He, in that context, big tech stocks like Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet may be fully valued. So he's drawing a comparison to what happened to tech in 99-2000, where the majority of the losses in, in subsequent uh, years were from those heavily five, five or six weighted stocks, which we've covered, I think, two weeks ago. To review all of our last articles, by the way, you just go to, you can click on sentiment or you can click on commentary and you can see each week what the market was doing and what we were thinking. Uh, but we covered this a couple weeks back. Oh, I guess in this article. So I, I put the article right here. You don't even, the Kanye West drive slow stock market talking about five stocks being tremendously overweight. So he ended on a construction note, a constructive note after he said that those five stocks may be fully valued, implying that because their weights are 25% of the S&P, uh, and those are the ones that are fully valued. But he also said that there might have been a bottom put in on March 23rd. It doesn't mean we can't you know, pull back some and, and have a correction, but if the bottom is in on the 23rd, and the stock market is the most overvalued he's seen because of the weights of those five tech stocks, the implication is the the way forward is a rotation. So uh, effectively what that means is if those stocks are either going to contribute less or even um, 
correct some, which would be the implication of what he's saying, then the persistence in market strength, i.e. not breaking the lows, i.e. the lows are in, would have to be from broadening participation from laggard sectors or a rotation out of tech into laggard sectors. My, my bet is more along the lines of, uh, you know, those companies taking a, a significant breather while the, the market generally broadens. And we saw nice signs of that. Uh, certainly with, with banks yesterday, we're, we've seen it with energy off the lows, uh, you know, up, we covered last week, uh, 80%, 60 to 80%, depending on the subsector. Um, and, and we're seeing it with home builders and we, we were seeing it. And I think that will resume in, in small caps as well. So um, if he's correct that the market is fully valued, that would be the top weights that make up 25%, which is predominantly tech but the lows are in, then we're going to see broadening and we're going to see some of those laggards start to participate to support the sustainability of the market staying up and even pers uh, persisting forward. So we're looking at what that means in terms of rotation and we're going to talk about it because we saw a lot of that come up this week while everyone was puking out financials um, early in the week on those four horsemen predicting the apocalypse. Um, Insiders in many regional banks were buying like crazy. And, and I'm going to show you that. We've been putting them out all week, but there's been so much activity in financials from the people inside in the know buying their own stocks that were beaten down after these four people came out and spoke. So um, now I want to get to the cost of caution because basically, you know, the country was slowly reopening and Dr. Fauci came out with that comment about being careful and a second wave and i think what really shook people up was schools may not reopen because basically when you say schools may re not reopen you're saying the economy won't reopen because people need childcare and they can't stay home and teach their kids and work it's just like it doesn't work you can't do two things at once so um and that's like a free option and, and, and i, I want to quantify it because i understand why everyone would say that you know let's not go bananas like we're opening up and you know go dancing on the bars and uh going to wild house parties like like they had in south korea you know they opened up uh, uh, all the young people went to nightclubs and they got a small flare-up uh because you know people are cooped up they want to go right back to life and and that level of caution is warranted but not opening up is a whole other level of potential recklessness that that I want to just put in economic terms and then you can decide for yourself. So first and foremost, um, let me start with the obligatory disclaimer of the, the day, which is I'm not a doctor, but OK, that's what every money manager has to say for the last two months. Um, you know, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, you know, I haven't agreed with him on a lot of stuff, I, I, I you know, but um, well, some things I do, some things I don't, like anyone else. Uh, same with Fauci. Some things I do, some things I don't. Um, but in many respects, he's been a great asset, uh, Dr. Fauci. But but Rand Paul said something interesting. He's, he, he said effectively that we respect your opinion, but you're not the only opinion. We, we need to have a broad range of opinions, of, of credentialed and expert opinions, equivalently credentialed to Dr. Fauci, who has a long track record. Uh, because, you know, all these models are saying different things, but but it's not free 
to take no action. To, you know, cautious has a cost. Opening has a cost. Everything has a cost. There, there's no status quo like, well, let's not just act yet. Not acting yet costs something every single day. Acting too quickly costs something. So we're going to try to just figure out what does it cost to be, you know, reckless and open like crazy? And what does it cost to be reckless and stay closed when we could be opening? Um, so I want to compare it to coming out of the 2008 and 2009 great financial crisis. There was a group of traders, and, and I believe these are well-meaning and in many cases sophisticated uh, uh, people who really believed that the worst was not over and that um, you know we were going to be in a long-term 20-year depression like the 30s and that you know we would need a war to get out of it or whatever. The bottom line is they were short on the market and they were aggressively explaining their viewpoint on a regular basis. And and what happened was many everyday people took their advice and either stayed out of the market and made nothing or or worse they tried to short alongside these these people and lost a lot of money. Look, it, it it's it's personal responsibility, it's fine. They they're entitled to their opinion, but I I want to start to quantify the cost of caution because basically what happened if you listen to the quote unquote cautious people during that period and there was a reason to be cautious there was uncertainty that's the way it always is uh near bottoms and and in uh uncertain periods but basically if you had a a very small if you had a very modest retirement account of a million dollars during that period 2008 2009 and you heeded this advice. And, and the, the problem with caution is the cautious people always sound the most sophisticated in the short term. They just do. It's like, wow, they're very measured and thoughtful and they're just not you know, overly optimistic when there's so much uncertainty. And people take that seriously. There's some value in negativity that it, it's, it's part of human survival instinct. Leaving that aside, what that cost the average person who listened to that advice or followed that model over, over the last 10 years, and many of these people stayed short for the last 10 years, um, is it cost them $4 million. So basically the S&P went from 666 to 33.93 over the next 11 years. It was a 409% gain. Uh, so that million dollars would have turned into over five million, so four million dollar gain, four hundred and nine percent return, and so caution is fine, but the cost of that caution was four four million dollars and change. So it's a luxury, and doing nothing has costs. Not taking action has costs. Not taking little risks ha has costs. Um, and even those people who were, you could say, reckless at the top in 2007, if it, you know, from there to today, they're still up double. Okay, so so they would have made you know a million or a million and a half. I don't have those exact figures, but I definitely have the exact figures when everyone was shorting in the hole and and adamantly telling others to do the same. So I'm comparing that to today because I'm trying to convey the point that while caution is valuable and it's a survival instinct and you have to look at the data and you can't do things recklessly, 
over caution um, when data is improving and when there are ways to safely act um, with a margin of safety, if that's mask, if that's social distancing, but it's getting back out, if it's that's wearing gloves, if that's, if you can work from home, you still work from home. If that's, you know, um, just taking responsible actions, but getting back into action is, is what I'm getting at here. So, so the different problem here is that oftentimes experts have, there's no downside in saying to be cautious because if they're right, they look brilliant. And if they're wrong, people are generally happy that the worst did not happen, even if it cost them in real terms. So the people that missed out on $4 million on a modest account of 400% gains, they say, well, I didn't lose my million. And that's fine. If that's what, if you're playing not to lose, then that's an acceptable result, except for the fact inflation ate up part of that million. So you effectively did lose a, a portion of that. So 2% compounded over 10 years, you know, you may have lost a, you know, a third of your buying power or 25% of your buying power, whatever it happens to be. So you did lose, but in purchasing power, but, um, and that's what we have to be careful of here. So when you talk about not opening up schools, look, if we had a resurgence that looks like April from opening too quickly, obviously we won't open up. We'll have to reclose. But the purpose of the shutdown was to flatten the curve, not to cure the disease. We don't have a cure for the disease. So the reason we wanted to flatten the curve is so that the healthcare system would not be overwhelmed so that if people got sick, they could get treatment. Now, you know, we do know a lot of hospitals have different treatments. Some are, have opponents to them, et cetera. But is there really a treatment? They basically go to the hospital and if they need a ventilator, 80% die on the ventilator. Now we have remdesivir that they're using so pe severe people can get saved. There are other experimental drugs that, you know, are anecdotal. But effectively, we made the sacrifice, and I think 90% of the people were in favor of the sacrifice. We flattened the curve. Now the healthcare systems, we sent the boat back. We didn't need the boat in New York, uh, USS Comfort. So now the healthcare system is at the stage that if we do get mini spikes and mini flare-ups, even in the epicenter in New York, we can more than adequately handle it. And that was the goal to flatten the curve. Not that you had a million, you know, 500,000 people going to hospital and there were 50,000 beds. That would have been a disaster because 90% automatically would be toast. Now the hospitals are basically more emptied. So if we do get mini spikes and so on, we have the capacity because we flattened it out. We spread out the risk. We paid the cost collectively to protect the most vulnerable of our population. And I think cons majority consensus says two months was the right cost and it was the right thing to do. And here's what it cost. So it cost, you know, I wrote this on Wednesday, so it was 30 million jobs. So it's actually now 36 million jobs. And it cost $9 trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity. So that's going to be paid for by the taxpayers in 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 terms of we're going to be borrowing and increase money supply. So effectively purchasing power over the long term. Unless we get a material amount of defaults and money supply contraction to offset it, that's that's a whole another complicated subject, but effectively the taxpayers have said saving a half a million to a million lives if it would have been that many, but you know, call it a half a million, 
um, was worth 36 million jobs in the short term and nine plus trillion dollars. And we're gonna, it's gonna be another trillion or two trillion dollars after the next package. So let's call it $10 trillion. Uh, those half a million lives collectively as a society we voted were worth $10 trillion and 36 million short-term jobs. And I think, you know, in those terms, it sounds like, well, that was a lot for 500,000, but I think everyone would say, you know what? Uh, that was probably the right decision. And I, and I think that generally was the right decision. And I think we're all in accordance. Now, though, if when you get, now that the curve is flattened and we paid the price, we made the sacrifice, we invested the money, we saved probably, who knows, we can't know, it could be only 100,000 lives, then that was really expensive. It could be a million, then that was really cheap. We don't know. But I think everyone agrees, right move, okay? It generally worked, it worked in China more or less, it worked in South Korea more or less, Japan, etc. So generally a good move. <clears throat> if you break that down, though, over the 60 days, we basically lost 500,000 jobs a day, and we borrowed or increased the money supply, which decreases our purchasing power over the long term of $150 billion a day. These are rough numbers, but let's just call it on a daily basis, a half a million jobs, 500,000 people's lives are adversely affected, and um, $150 billion that we have to pay in one way or another, either decrease purchasing power, or we have to repay the debt, uh, in, you know, Etc. It it's a net negative. It's not free. Um, so we did that. Now the question is: Do you say to us, well, just to be cautious, let's keep schools closed because there are fifty or hundred cases of 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 these kids that you know have this type of uh, inflammatory reaction? I I don't know a lot about it very small number, no one knows a lot about it yet, but but certainly because of COVID, because they don't want kids going to school and bringing COVID home and then having another flare up. And that's cautious and that's reasonable and that's right, but you cannot make that decision honestly outside of the context of what does it cost. So for instance, we know what it generally costs is a half a million jobs a day and $150 billion of money that we're going to pay in either decreased purchasing power. Will it directly or indirectly, it will impact us. At the local level, it will directly impact us in terms of uh, property taxes, income taxes, and sales taxes. We will see that because eventually it has to get paid. Um, unless, you know, they actually change the laws so states can go bankrupt, et cetera. But then you have the daisy chain effect of the bondholders. So we, we don't even want to get into that. The other thing about that caution is that, ironically, in the epicenter, 66% of the people who contracted the virus in New York City were people who were sheltered in place at home. Okay, so I have the link to the article here. You can even Google it. And that's scary because, in some sense, it implies that there was a higher probability of getting it staying home than if we had gone about our business. We don't know the counterfactual, so that's hard to say. But the idea of losing 500,000 jobs a day to save 1,000 people a day, because we've lost about 80,000 over two and a half months. Um, the other thing that's not yet measured is how many people overdosed of the 500,000 a day 
So 36 million people, if you're telling me that less than 100,000 people committed suicide, overdosed on drugs, uh, or went into deep depression because of losing their jobs and impacting their family, if it's less than 100,000, then then it was an equal trade-off, except we, we have a big bill. If it's well more than 36 million, uh, 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 100,000 or 80,000 that we lost from COVID, then we paid a lot of money and we lost just as many as we saved, which is not a good investment. Um, we probably won't have those proper measures for a number of weeks or months, but we may find out that we lost 300,000 people because of the stress of losing a business. You know, the other thing is, it's not just, look, a lot of these jobs are going to come back. 75% plus will probably bounce back pretty quickly by the end of the year, furloughed, etc. <laughs> but sadly, a good portion of these businesses, restaurants, uh, are not going to come back. Certainly not under the same owner. And that can be life changing in a bad way. So I would be very interested to see, again, there are, you know, caution has a cost. I, I just want to make sure that we understand it. I'm not saying one is right or the other. I'm just saying we have to compare apples to apples. We can't just say, well, we better be cautious and stay home. Okay, but the meter's running. It's like telling a cab driver, I'm, I don't know where I wanna go. I'm just gonna sit here and do nothing. Well, the meter is still running. You're paying that cab driver as if you drove for that 20 minutes, even if you're not driving. And that's the same with the capitalist economy. And that's why it's costing 500,000 jobs a day, albeit the numbers are coming down. I understand all that. I'm talking rough numbers and concepts here and 150 billion of stimulus aid and liquidity per day. So are we saving more people than we're losing? Are we breaking even but still having the cost? Or are we saving way more than we're losing? In other words, no one that lost their business or job committed suicide or overdosed. Uh, and we only had 80,000 people die where we would have had two or 300,000 or maybe more if we had not done this. So, so I think everyone agrees we made the right decision for two months. I think now moving forward, when you start throwing these trial balloons out of keeping schools closed, we can have that, we should have that discussion, but not in the absence of what it actually costs. It should not be had in the absence, it, it shouldn't be a free option like, let's just be cautious in case something happens because that caution has a daily significant cost. And especially if we're seeing 66% of the people getting it were the ones that stayed home. You know, all these articles about insufficient vitamin D, yada, 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 who, who knows? But if there's no difference if you'd gone out or stayed in or even a higher probability of staying in, which is kind of scary when you think about it, um, then we, we might as well just go about our business. You know, at some level, you take risk. You know, I think 40 to 70,000 people died of this flu season, which was cut short because anyone that basically died after February was counted as COVID. But, you know, it, it's not comparable to the flu in terms of what it is, it's much more serious. In terms of the deaths, it's comparable. You know, 70,000 people over a few months, that is comparable. So um, so, so that, that, that testimony just triggered something. You can't throw around free options. You have to say, 
I think we should not open the schools, and I think it's worth paying $150 billion a day and losing 500,000 more jobs a day in order to keep the schools shut because I think 2 million people would die if we opened the schools. And then back it up. But, but you can't just say shut the schools because it's a good idea because there's real cost. And, um, and, and you know, I, I hope that's taken in. That, that's not a doctor conversation. I'm not a doctor. That's a mathematical conversation that doctors and society need to have together. We can't just have, like Rand Paul said, one person's opinion affecting the decisions of leadership who are not doctors who say, I have to listen to the doctor. I govern. I'm not a doctor. We need more doctors. We need a broad spectrum of, of credentialed, credible opinions as these decisions are made. Now, fortunately, it seems like most of the country has lifted restrictions and is slowly trying to reopen. And we're going to look at the results of Georgia and we're going to look at the results of countries like Australia that have been open for a few weeks and a few months and, and how they're doing. And, and the good news is it looks good. So this whole dialogue will hopefully prove to be moot. But if it doesn't and we do see spike ups, we should expect spike ups. The question is, what is the real trade off? Caution is a luxury that costs real money and real lives on both sides. So that needs to be borne into consideration. Okay, so my, my general conclusion on that whole argument was that future decisions moving forward may look something like this. So for instance, like, like LA County said, we're gonna just delay. There's this reporter, Heidi Chung, from Yahoo, who's amazing, and she tweeted out that her dad owns a small business, and he he paid he he followed the plan. He said he was going to pay his employees for two months not to work. That was the deal with the government. Problem was, LA County said we're moving the football, Charlie Brown, and they just said we're going to stay closed for another thirty days. He can't afford it now to do it, or it's it's just non economic to do it. Uh, I don't know all the details, but basically it changed his equation and would he have paid that money out for two months if he knew they were gonna move the football on him? And that's what business people have to grapple with. So the real decision for LA County has to start to be something like this. If we stay closed for another you know, 30 days in XYZ state, we will lose 50,000 jobs per day or 1.5 million for the month that we stay closed. We're going to add $200 billion to our state deficit that we're going to have to pay through higher property tax, sales tax, or income tax for the next two decades. So let's quantify it to $25,000 extra cost per each resident. So you basically are now saying we're going to stay closed for 30 days to stay to save lives. It's going to cost you individually about $25,000 extra for us to you know, collectively make this decision is their buy-in. And, and that's the kind of decision that needs to be made versus a unilateral decision on the basis of one or two expert opinions that you know, may or may not be fully considered. So, um, so that's the type of analysis that needs to go into these open and closed decisions is an honesty about the real costs and trade-offs. So, you know, it might cost $25,000 per resident that they'll pay out in extra taxes over the next 10 or 15 years, but you're going to save 3,000 lives that you, that would have died if they stayed open for those extra 30 days. So then society has to vote. And those people who can stay home, if they realize the risks are still there, they're going to, they're going to proactively choose to continue to work from home, which will reduce 
the likelihood of 3,000 full deaths. Um, and those that have to go out are going to be more prone to wearing masks and following social distancing and doing the gloves, knowing that the risks are there. And that's, that's really how we have to think about these choices going forward. But to Cavalier say, let's be cautious and stay closed, that is not free. Okay. And, and once we, if we're leaning in that direction, we have to quantify the price and then decide proactively at the price. And I said at the end, if we enter a depression, it will have been of our own choosing, not by necessity. In other words, we decided that to save an extra hundred to 200 to 300,000 lives, we're willing to have one to two decades of subdued growth. I don't think we're going to make that decision. I don't think we're going to be faced with that decision. I don't think the flare-ups are going to be as extreme as could be possible that a person would be worried about. You know, there was another guy yesterday who was uh, kicked out, but he testified and he said that it's going to be the you know winter from hell or whatever he said. You know, we, no one knows, so we're going to have to make that decision if and when it comes. But, but we have to make it honestly and say, this is the real trade-off. It's going to cost each individual X amount of dollars of increased taxes and pay over time. And at the municipal level, that's real money. You can't just, I mean, a municipality can bankrupt so far a state can't. So it's not like you can just, you know, crush the bondholders. And by the way, if you crush the bondholders, who are you crushing? You're crushing all the pension holders, which are all the workers. So you can't do that. So if we make these decisions, we have, you know, we, we pay for them directly or indirectly, but it, there's a direct impact on us. Um, and, and it has to be honestly considered moving forward. Okay, now onto the short-term view. AAII sentiment got down to 23 or stayed down from last week. That's an extreme level. Is there still a lot of pessimis pessimism, which implies... Usually you see these type of readings closer to bottoms versus tops. You can look at the chart that I put out here all the times that it traded below, you know, 23 and what the market looked like. The majority of the vast majority of the time you got a bounce or a long term rally from it. So there are some exceptions and you can look at that bearishness stayed up over 50 percent. That's also an extreme. So people are scared, even though we're up 35 percent or we had that rally spike low to uh, trough to peak. Of 35% and yet there's still fear in the market which means we can potentially climb, climb the wall of worry higher uh, we are digesting the gains since early uh, to, to mid-April and the and, and when waiting for direction so we're gonna find out uh, fear and greed index was at 38 so that's up from what it was close to zero weeks ago you can see my past articles so that'll move in fits and starts we are thawing we took a little step backwards a little more fear here's the long term Look how low we got in March. I mean, basically flatlined like December of 2018. Um, the National Association of Active Investment Managers, it dipped down from 78 where they were chasing the market uh, back down to 67. So a little trepidation among active managers. The message hasn't changed. Uh, we took, took advantage of the big discounts in mid-March through early April, high quality equities. You can look at back at our uh, notes and our media and uh, et cetera. We spent the last five weeks since early April uh, after the big rally moving into distressed high yield credit, discrete selective securities, not ETFs, 
one-off securities that we're researching that are down materials since the coronavirus. Some are down 30, 40, 50, 60%, yielding you know, 18, 25, 30%. And you're seeing it in the capital structure. So while on equities, we were buying you know, super household names, that were down, you know, 40, 50, 60%, you know, the Pfizer's of the world, the Coca-Cola's of the world, um, the, the Wells Fargo's of the world, which is still cheap, by the way. Uh, and we're going to talk about that uh, as we move into high yield credit, because we're more senior on the capital structure in case there's a problem with the company, you have a higher likelihood of getting paid. You know, the equity gets wiped out. You're more senior in the capital structure. So you can be on a little lower quality what would be an equity name when you're in the credit, get the yield, get the upside and uh, participate that way. So that's where we've been focused. But this week, banks got uh, basically some of them retested or got close to uh, very inexpensive levels of early April and late March. So we took advantage of that and we were, you know, net adders of uh, of the big, big and, and a couple regionals, but uh, mostly big banks uh, this week. And that proved to be right. And it proved to be lucky on Thursday. We'll see if we get follow through, but I, I think that is going to be a major part of the rotation going into the back half of the year. Uh, also, if you, I'm not a big seasonality guy and especially this year, everything's off whack. But if you look at the periods <coughs> in the election cycle, there's an, a, there's a seasonality of election cycles, like first year of a presidency, second year, third year, fourth year of the general stock market. But there's also sectoral seasonality, not only on a yearly basis, but on an election basis. And financials tend to do exceptionally well in the fourth year of the presidential, second half of the fourth year of the presidential cycle. So we might be a little early, but we're building there. Uh, we were early with energy and that's starting to take off quite a bit. So I think we're seeing pockets of rotation. And lastly, home builders, we're seeing um, um, a nice move, and we'll talk about that. So that was the big change in our note. Um, I, I tied it up with Thomas Rhett would suggest, go, go crack open a beer and relax, because as the story goes, there's a pony in the pile, and there ain't no problem that a beer can't fix. <laughs> so uh, uh, the pony in the pile story is basically there were two Five-year-old twin boys, one a pessimist and the other an optimist. Uh, you can read the story here. But they had completely different personalities. The parents brought them to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist takes the pessimist into a room with a bunch of brand-new toys. He says to the kid, you want to play with the toys? The boy said yes, but he starts crying because he says, if I do, I'll, I'll wind up breaking them. So that was the pessimist view, new toys. He sees the problem and the opportunity. Then the optimist takes the other boy, the optimist, into a room filled with horse manure. And the boy, you know, yelps with delight and he climbs on the pile. He starts digging through the pile of horse manure like crazy, scoop after scoop. And the doctor goes, what the hell are you doing? And the boy goes, well, if there's this much manure, there's got to be a pony here somewhere. So uh, I, th I think that we're getting overwhelmed with the manure, with the short-term financial data, which is backward-looking and expected. And we might be missing the view through the uh, windshield. Looking, we're looking through the rearview mirror. We might be missing the view through the windshield, although the market's discounted some of it. Uh, with $9 trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity and $1 trillion plus on the way, um, I think as people are, as the country's now opening up and we're seeing it in demand, which we've talked about for the last four weeks, demand comes when people go back to work, when the country opens up, we're seeing it in oil prices, we're seeing it in gasoline demand, 
Um, we're seeing it even at the TSA numbers, which we're going to talk about. So that's that's exciting news. The next thing I want to cover is um, uh, Tom Lee of Fundstrap put out this data from Austria, eased their restrictions a month ago, and cases are still going down. So that's positive that they've been able to sustain that. But let's talk about the real world here in America. And uh, freedom-loving Americans are you know, different. People were worried about Georgia. This is early. They've only been open for uh, over two weeks, so there's a lagged effect in when you get it. But the cases have just fallen off the map. This is from Georgia.gov. So you had your opening up around here. Uh, the seven-day average is 244 cases. The cases confirmed today are 22. So it continues to just fall off a cliff. That's really good news. You may see a spike up, you know, two weeks from now because it would take them two weeks to get it or, or feel the symptoms. But this is good news, okay, so far, knock on wood. Next thing, uh, economic data this week. Uh, today, wanted to just cover two things. Number one, what surprised me was... Um, well, this didn't surprise me. The rig count came down. Um, this, they expected 277. It went down to, uh, this is for oil rigs. The total rig, let's talk oil rigs, uh, came down to 258. Okay, this is uh, down from 1,400? 14, no, 1,600. This is down from 1,600 rigs in December of 2014. So low oil prices cure low oil prices. It's just a, a lagged effect. You know, we covered this last week over the next year to two years. Speaking of which, that's going to be one of our Ask Me Anything questions. A guy asked me, Benjamin asked me about Schlumberger, so we'll talk about that. But, um, you know, albeit the rigs are much more productive than they were that, you know, in 2014, but not that much. So you're down materially eventually you're going to have the supply demand imbalance also the saudis cut another million barrels on top of the 9.6 in uh, 9.7 in may and june then it goes to 7.6 till the end of the year then 5.6 for another year and a half uh, they're going to abort those cuts yeah oil is going to spike up way before the end of the, the tail of those cuts but my guess is we go over 50 then all those tankers unload at 50 we take another leg down and then we we finally have the supply demand imbalance maybe 12 to 18 months off, uh, but we'll, we'll take it as it comes. That's a long-term view. <laughs> the other thing that was surprising here and really good to see was consumer sentiment exceeded expectations. So people are really in consensus. You know, people keep looking at the employment numbers and say it's a depression, but consumers would not be this optimistic they're close to their jobs and they know, and many of them are off to teach their kids, et cetera. They know a lot of these jobs are coming back and that's why sentiment is remaining relatively high. I mean, the hardest impact areas, if you look at 70 some odd percent has been in, you know, retail, uh, retail and travel, leisure, hospitality, restaurants, and education. And those are all related to the shutdown that can bounce back as we open. And we're, we're really starting to open in earnest. So um, good decisions are being made. The other thing is capacity utilization. This was also very constructive. You know, 
People are like, oh my God, capacity utilization's at 64%. We shut the country down 100% for two months. How is it not zero? So this is good news, guys. Uh, so that that is something to definitely, it shows potential. Uh, retail sales were negative, okay? Um, negative 15%. So, you know, this is this mishmash of manure and there's the kid in there digging through for the pony in the pile. I'm showing you the pony in the piles. Now, you could say all the toys are going to break, but I, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, watch out for the pony in the pile. Uh, quick note, those of you listening to the podcast, if we run over the hour, go to hedgefundtips.com. You can watch the video cast and just pick up where you left off. It's word for word the same thing. I'm recording it simultaneously. So it's just the podcast cuts off after 60 minutes. Uh, Empire State Manufacturing was a lot better than expected, which is shocking because New York is the epicenter. So again, the, these are, you know, green shoots, as they would say. Um, throughout the week, um, the continuing jobless claims were better than expected, 22.8 versus 25. However, the initial jobless claims uh, were worse, but they came down. They're coming down every week. So that's really, really good news. Uh, next, we had uh, crude inventories. You, you were, um, uh, the draw was bigger than expected, so that was bullish, and oil prices have acted accordingly. And CPI was light. We're not getting uh, inflation in the short term, although we did see wage inflation in the uh, employment report last week, and I think that's going to stay. I think these bonus hazard payments are going to be sticky to get people back to work, particularly with all the federal unemployment, the 600 a week on top of the... Um, state plus these $1,200 bonus checks. Uh, they're going to have to pay up to get people to take the risk and to get them to give up, you know, the free money. So that's probably the first place we'll see the impact of the cost of shutting down in terms of inflation will be in wages. Um, but that's a good thing. Lower end is going to benefit from that initially and they deserve to so that that's a good thing so that's some of that data we did the rig count ah this is my favorite from last week the tsa checkpoint take a look at this guys this is people that check in in u.s airports um it troughed in april at i thought we got yeah eighty-seven thousand down from 2.2 million on april 14th that's the amount of people that flew or went through TSA checkpoints. Look what we've done in just one month. Went from 87,000, we hit 234,000 uh, yesterday. So, you know, 4X uh, gain, albeit we're still down, you know, 90% from last year, but, you know, slowly but surely. Uh, my general view is if they made uh, masks and uh, mandatory in the airports and in the airplanes, I think you'd see this number jump to 500,000 within 60 days for domestic travel, if not more, which would be hugely bullish for <clears throat> the whole economy, the Boeings, the airlines, the debt markets, everything. I, I would just do it because the governments that control the airports, they could just make it mandatory and then the airlines could follow suit and people could just wear them and it would be a good thing for the short term and take it on a month by month basis, get people back. You know, with the HEPA filters they have on the airplanes, the air is actually cleaner in the planes than it is outside the planes in the airport, which most people don't know. Um, but anyway, it's going in the right direction. Next thing, Fed balance sheet, they're keeping the pedal to the metal as the backstop. Although um, slower pace, they increased 78 billion. 
The balance sheet's gone from 4.1, excuse me, 4.1 trillion to 6.9 trillion. So a gain of 2.8 trillion since February 26th. So in two and a half months, <coughs> big gains in the mortgage-backed security space. Let's see. Uh, well, they bought a lot of treasuries this week, so it was mostly treasuries this week. Um, I think they did some mortgage-backed securities as well. But you can pull that up and take a look at it. Uh, factors affecting reserve balances. This is what the balance sheet looks like, the $4.1 trillion to $6.9. So they've steadied, and the market steadied too, you know, uh, at the same time. Market went straight up when they went straight up. So they're going to just be more surgical about how they do the money with the Main Street lending program versus just buying exclusively securities. They were in the market buying high-yield ETFs uh, midweek. That um, certainly didn't hurt. Um, okay, next point. Shanghai Disneyland tickets sell out as park prepares to reopen. So it just, you know, their cases peaked on February 5th in China. Our cases peaked in mid-April. So about uh, two and a half months behind, we can look forward to things like this. So if that was the case, you know, April, May, June, I mean, maybe maybe the parks open in July in, in the U.S. Uh, carefully and with social distancing and everything else. No one can see that right now, but certainly uh, not impossible. Uh, next, we want to get to earnings. We do a uh, few sectors each week. This is 2020 earnings. We're going to start adding 2021 earnings on the next round because they're more relevant as we move through the first half now. Um, transports were down 100% the earnings in the last 60 days, obviously fully attributable to um, airline earnings going negative in a material way. Retail earnings in the last 60 days were down 13.02. Uh, not terrible, surprisingly not terrible, given all that's happened. Uh, technology was down only 8.13 in the last 60 days for 2020. Okay, next I want to get into, uh, we talked about the rotation into financials, home builders, uh, potentially small caps, and... Uh, uh, well, we'll we'll just go through them. But Pulte came out. This was very interesting. In their earnings on this week, they said after an initial significant contraction in housing demand, recent sales trends have been more encouraging as weekly net new orders went from approximately 140 homes in the last week of uh, March to almost 400 homes in the final week of April that ended May 3rd. So. This is pretty exciting to see that type of growth return so quickly. Obviously, mortgage rates are at all-time lows. Uh, people probably want to move out of more urban areas into more residential, which they service. And millennials, that was a trend that was starting to happen in terms of housing formation before this. This will have dramatically accelerate the move into the suburbs with housing formation, which is very long-term bullish. We saw it in the 80s and 90s. We saw it in the 50s and 60s. 85 million baby uh, millennials relative to 80 million boomers. This is a good thing. This will accelerate it. So it's nice to see that. Um, just as I said, so in midweek before the, uh, Charles Gasparino published that uh, note about you know, animal spirits returning to the financials and banks wanting to potentially get together, uh, they were getting sold off <coughs> part because of the talk about negative rates, which fortunately 
Chair Powell took off the table. That would be bad for uh, bank earnings. Uh, they won't let it happen in the U.S. But um, because once bank earnings go negative, they're going to be less inclined to expand credit to businesses. Uh, and it will have a knock-on effect to the economy as, you know, we've seen the zombification of Europe and Japan through effectively doing negative rates. So uh, bad move, not the way to go. They basically said, we'll do unlimited QE, but we will not do negative rates. So you're seeing while everyone else is selling, so this was unusual options in JP Morgan. So that's an institution. This was insider buying from a director of First Financial Bank shares. This was in, this is all this week, folks. While pe while the rest of the world, while retail and the rest of the world is selling off banks, the insiders are buying. Uh, 